Now, Lord, we need your help. We can become so conditioned to opening this book that we forget who wrote this book. This book was not written for our entertainment, but for our transformation. Use these words, your words, to transform us, to change the way we think, to change the way we view life, to change the way we view you. We've all heard sermons that did not land on us. That's not the fault of your word. That's the fault of our hearts. We were distracted. We were not fully engaged. We were not ready to process, digest, internalize your word. Let this not be one of those days. May the simplicity of your word rock us in these next few moments. Father, let this not be a time where we are listening to a lecture, but rather a time where we experience a redemptive event. May we be moved by grace, by the grace that moved our sins and placed them onto Jesus' account, by the grace that placed his righteousness onto our account. Challenge us, help us, and wreck us afresh by this text. Holy Spirit, every word, every syllable, Every truth is in vain unless you show up and start moving. Move among us. Our Father, we love you above the powers of language to express. We have great love for you. But our love isn't bottomless. So we rejoice this moment that our salvation doesn't depend on our love for you but on your love for us. Our love can be imperfect and staggering because your love is perfect and bottomless. I'm opening your word to your people. Help them to feast on it, to bank on it, to rest on it, and to trust on it. Help us to never delay when your word invites us to advance. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Last week, Elijah's mountaintop experience. This week, down into the valley of the broom tree. He went from the mountaintop to the valley all within two chapters. All within one day. It can happen that quickly. Our passage shows the prophet at his worst. We find here the warts and wrinkles of Elijah. We see Elijah on his worst day, his lowest day, his darkest day. The greatest of saints reduced to the darkest of moods. The truth is, even the best can become depressed and downhearted. I want to tag this text, the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. Have you ever been there? Are you currently there? When we study the Old Testament, we are not looking for models of morality. Rather, for mirrors for identity. We see our heart condition in the scrapbook of biblical biography. We find in our text instructions for repairing a discouraged heart. Elijah is overworked, overworried, overworn and just simply over it all of it he's depleted he's running on empty he's in what John Bunyan called the swamp of despair Martin Lloyd-Jones said Elijah is going through spiritual depression this depth of sadness is hard to shake it's not a 24-hour virus ask John Piper who found himself in the middle of vacation, sitting on a porch, crying. His wife, Noel, came out and asked what was wrong. He said, I don't know. It stayed like that for two years. If you are overworked, overworried, overworn, and just simply over it, if you are depleted, running on empty, visiting the swamp of despair, there is good news. You are not the first to experience the dark night of the soul. God in heaven knew where you would be this day. And in his divine providence, he brings you to this text to receive 
sustaining grace. The journey is too great for you. The swamp is too deep for you. You will never make it without God's sustaining grace. Church, here's where we're going and how we're going to get there. We are going here. There is no swamp so deep that Christ isn't deeper still. Here's how we're going to get there. Elijah visits the swamp, verses 1 through 8. Elijah visits the swamp of despair, verses 1 through 8. Elijah shows up, excuse me, God shows up at the swamp of despair, verses 9 through 18. God gently leads Elijah out of the swamp, verses 19 through 21. Elijah visits the swamp of despair, verses 1 through 8. God shows up at the swamp of despair, verses 9 through 18. God gently leads Elijah out of the swamp, verses 19 through 21. We will take them one at a time and rain some applications throughout and leave you with some truths at the end. Elijah visits the swamp of despair, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Here's the backstory. Elijah just experienced a monumental victory on Mount Carmel. The fire fell and so did the people. Baal was exposed and Yahweh was exalted. The prophets of Baal were beheaded. A huge massacre. After the fire fell from heaven, Elijah prayed for rain from heaven. And God sent it. King Ahab is trying to outpace the torrential downpour. He's traveling by horse and chariot, headed home, headed for his wife Jezebel. The bedroom light is on. She's up waiting to hear the good news. She looks out her window and sees rain pouring down. So she's convinced Baal sent the rain after he sent the fire on Mount Carmel. She's expecting Ahab to burst through the doors and say, Elijah is dead. Instead, he bursts through the doors and says, your 850 prophets of Baal are dead. Jezebel, Yahweh defeated our demon gods. And Elijah massacred all the priests who were like sons to you. Now, I'm preaching the gaps here, but I, I really think King Ahab was ready to submit to Yahweh. That seems to be the flavor of the text at the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. Ahab was high-fiving Elijah and sitting down to eat a meal Elijah provided. Perhaps Ahab said something like this. Baal has failed us, my dear. We have all repented. I think you should too. See, I think Ahab was ready to believe God until he got home and told the story to Jezebel. Once he saw her mascara-laden lashes and Maybelline-tinted lips, he changed his mind. There's something you should know about Jezebel. Although Ahab wears the crown in the kingdom, Jezebel wears the pants in the family. The trousers were worn by her and the chariots were driven by her. She says, jump, and Ahab responds, how high? The keys to the kingdom are in her pockets, not his. Now, don't forget that Elijah ran ahead of King Ahab. He outpaced the chariot and horses. Ahab had to walk past Elijah in order to go into the house and see Jezebel. Elijah is just outside, maybe waiting a few doors down. He's convinced this irrefutable victory will change Jezebel's mind. He's expecting a revival of sorts. Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, that's the dead bell prophets, by this time tomorrow. This is not the response Elijah was hoping for. Elijah, you've got 24 hours to live. She barks at the attendant. Tell the troublemaker his days are limited to one. 
She makes a paganized oath. She swore to her gods. Elijah knows she is more than capable of carrying out her threat. She's killed many Yahweh prophets before. They died martyrs. He has no reason to doubt her vicious threatenings. Do you know what's so sad about this scene? The gospel from Carmel did not bring Jezebel to repentance. Would you take your eyes and look at verse 3? Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah is running for his life. He's retreating from a beaten enemy. He stood up to 850 prophets, but could not stand up to one bossy woman. Certainly, someone who just saw God do all these miraculous exhibitions would not flee. He's fearless in chapter 18, fearful in chapter 19. He's running to the fight in chapter 18, running from the fight in chapter 19. Is this the same Elijah? What in the world happened to him? He's responding differently now than before. He was so bold before. What happened? Beloved, he runs off because nothing has changed. The fireball fell from heaven, but the fight was not over. That realization sent him into retreat. All this dramatic work and nothing has changed. It made absolutely no difference. He runs to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Do you remember that phrase used all throughout the Old Testament to describe the promised land? It's used over and over. It reads from Dan to Beersheba. It's pointing out the geographical extremes of the land. The absolute northernmost point, Dan, and the absolute southernmost point, Beersheba. He's a northern prophet headed to the southern border. He's now out of his prophetic jurisdiction. He heads to the deep south. He's lost his fight. Hear me. He runs before he listens. He doesn't allow God's word to direct his path. He chooses the path. God isn't directing his steps. Elijah went AWOL. He's running away from Jezreel even faster than he ran toward it. From Jezreel to Beersheba, that's about 90 miles. And he's not done yet. He will drop his servant off here, then go a day's journey into the wilderness. This is the same servant who watched for a cloud the size of a man's hand on Mount Carmel. Look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah plops down under a broom tree. The KJV called it a juniper tree. This broom tree was a desert bush that grew to the height of 10 feet. It had slender branches and small leaves with delicate blossoms. It was the only desert shade available. He's sitting under that tree going through a combination of emotional burnout, spiritual disappointment, physical weariness, along with darkness and uncertainty. We are stunned at this admission. He wants to die. He even prays it. God, I want to die. I don't want to go on any longer. I don't want to continue living. His soul is as dry as the desert sand. He's mentally, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually spent. He's exhausted. He's depleted. In his despondency, he cries, it is enough. He's throwing in the towel. 
Lord, it's all I can take. I give in. Uncle. (laughs) Beloved, under that tree, he cracked. He broke. Which leads us to this application. What Elijah is feeling is not unique to him. It's a universal experience. Deep, crushing discouragement. What Elijah is feeling is not unique to him. It's a universal experience. Deep, crushing discouragement. Have you ever wanted to die? Prayed? God, I want to die. You, like Elijah, will have moments in life when you don't want to continue. You will say, I've had enough. I can't take another financial hit. I can't, ne- can't take another call relaying bad news. I can't meet with another doctor telling me I have another health issue they can't identify. I can't take another disappointment in my marriage. I can't handle one more day at that job. I've had enough. I can't handle seeing my mother and father in their dementia. I've had enough, Lord. I can't take the constant struggle with my defiant child. I want to give up, Lord. I want to sit under this tree and die. Physically, I'm just done. I've hit my limit. I'm going to die under this tree. Moses asked God to put him to death on the spot. Job wished he had never been born. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. Jonah asked God to take away his life. Dear flock, God brought all of these men out of it, and he will bring you out of it. Have you been through enough to know that he is enough for you? What are the situations, the situations that cause you to want to die? We must not simply treat the systems, the, the symptoms, but identify the causes. We must diagnose the root problem. Why did Elijah visit the swamp of despair? Well, I think it's simple. The, the lack of results made him disillusioned. He, he didn't pray that he would die because he was afraid Jezebel would make him die. If that were the case, he, he would not have run and, and just stayed there for her to kill him. He's not afraid of Jezebel. That didn't bring all this on. It's more. He evidently hoped Mount Carmel would produce a final victory. The fight would be over. Surely this would be a time of revival. This was his hope until Jezebel crushed it. He's disappointed his spectacular victory was so short-lived. He says, I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. I'm no better than they were. Now, some commentators say, I don't believe it, I don't think he's whining like, oh, my granddad and granny had it better than I do. Woe is me, my life is hard. No, Elijah had hoped to purge the land of idolatry, to cleanse the nation of false worship, But with Jezebel's response, he knew he failed to do what his fathers had failed to do. He pulled up a few weeds, but they grew back the next day. Why didn't Jezebel repent? Why didn't the nation turn? God provided enough evidence. Some people will see the power of God and still reject it. It's never about the evidence. Elijah is in the throes of discouragement because of his grievous disappointment with people. Hey, mother with an unsaved child. Hey, brother with an unsaved sister. Hey, son with an unsaved father. Hey, spouse with an unsaved partner. Does your heart grow weary when their heart grows hard? There are many causes for spiritual depression. There are many causes for our melancholy. This was Elijah's. 
effectiveness of ministry seems to be the main reason for his spiritual depression. There was no return to Yahweh through his work. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. If I were woken up by an angel, I think I would stay awake. Not Elijah. He's exhausted. He eats a little bit, then falls right back to sleep. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This is the third time Elijah has been miraculously fed. First, the raven. Second, the widow. Third, the angel. Who made the cake? An angel. I'm just going to go ahead and say this. This is angel food cake. <laughs> Notice the angel doesn't berate him. He encourages him to eat. Like a parent would sit on the side of a bed and rub the child's back. It's okay. Why don't you eat this and fall back to sleep? No rebuke for sin. No Get up and shake it off. No, life is hard. Suck it up, buttercup. The angel didn't say, you're the weakest person I've ever met. No. His first response wasn't rebuke, but eat. Then sleep. Then eat again. Angels in the Bible are never just levitating around like astronauts in space. No, angels in the Bible are always on assignment. This angel was sent by God. You witness the tenderness of God toward Elijah in his moment of weakness. God feeds his runaway prophet. The angel is the cake baker and the comfort maker because God knew that's what Elijah needed at this moment. Sometimes the best thing you can do to escape the swamp of despair is just take a nap. You say, but I've got a kid who's climbing the walls. Well, I like what one pastor said, give him a large dose of Benadryl and go to bed. <laughs> he said that. I would never. <laughs> I love the answer the little kid gave when he was asked, son, if your mother could have anything in the world, what is... What is the one thing she'd like the most? The little boy said, she'd like to go back to bed. <laughs> you need sleep. I believe in a good mattress. You need food. Elijah was prescribed sleep and eat. One of my top three preaching books of all time was by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor turned preacher in London. He wrote a book entitled Spiritual Depression. In it, he said, and I quote, a good meal and sleep may be the first step to recovery. When you are discouraged, the Lord may just say, rest, eat. Charles Spurgeon used to say, we are souls attached to bodies. If you are exhausted, maybe the most spiritual thing you could do is take a nap. God gives his beloved sleep. Vance Havner, an old country preacher, <laughs> said, if you don't come apart and rest, you're just going to come apart. I had a pastor friend of mine. We did our doctoral degrees together. He told me once, I think it was two to three years ago, I called him while I was under the broom tree. And he said, now you're not seeing patterns, Kyle. I'm seeing them and you are not. It's always winter time. It's always after you have preached 14 weeks straight. You are depleted. You have to start disciplining yourself to recognize these things. 
Then he told me it, it's pride thinking the church can't survive without your preaching. You've got gifted men there who can handle the word. You need a break. You are running on empty. The best medicine could be sleep and eat. You know what the angel did not say? The angel did not say, Elijah, here's a Paul David trip book. Take one Paul David trip book and one John Piper sermon and you will be good. That's what I would have prescribed. Random. Have you ever noticed there are no melancholy angels? There are no depressed angels. Once you are in the eternal presence of God, those things pass away. The angel tells Elijah, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. In other words, your journey is not over until the Lord says it's over. You may want to get out of the race early, but it's not your time. Arise and eat, for God isn't finished with you. You're not going to make it on an empty stomach. You've got a long journey ahead. The journey is too great for you. That's a reminder we all need. We go through the journey like we can be sustained by our own effort. We cannot. If grace doesn't sustain us, we will not be sustained. Elijah, if I send you on a journey... It comes with a promise. Mother that doesn't want to continue. Gentleman who wants to quit his hard job. Lady who misses home. Your race isn't over. Sleep, eat, then continue the journey. God says, I'll give you buckets of grace to sustain you. He knows your frailty. Verse 8, and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, <laughs> that's some nutritious food. One meal that lasts you 40 days, that's some energy drink. That's a protein shake like none other. Elijah travels over 200 miles to reach this mountain. Horeb, the Mount of God, is an alternate name for Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. Elijah visits the swamp of despair. Now, God shows up at the swamp of despair. Verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? First the angel, now the Lord himself comes to Elijah. Obadiah hid prophets in a cave, now Elijah finds himself in a cave. This cave is more sacred than he thought. In the Hebrew, it does not say a cave. In the Hebrew, it says the cave. There's a definite article. This is the cave. The same cave where Moses stood when God said, I will show you the shadow of my glory. It's the same cleft of the rock. The same outcropping, the same cave. There is some debate about this, but I think Elijah is sinning by going to Mount Horeb. The angel didn't tell him to go to Horeb. The text just says he went. Mount Horeb is 250 miles further south. He's still out of his jurisdiction. This is further proof when the Lord says... What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. In other words... I've been working my heart out for you, God of angel armies. I have been. He immediately embarks on what he has done for the Lord. See, that's the problem with pity parties. You start to talk about what you have done for God and not what God has done for you. 
It seems this dark night of the soul has turned into a pity party. It didn't start that way, but it ended that way. This has turned into sin. We have moved into pity party country. Elijah wanted a cold, dark cave. Let me be in the dark and sulk. Be in the dark and feel bad. This is his spiritual collapse. I'm the lone faithful one in a land of compromisers. Everyone else has thrown out your covenant, but I've kept it. Do you see what's happening, church? Elijah is going to the mountain where God gave the covenant and then is claiming, I'm the only one who has kept the covenant that you gave in this very spot. Now, I don't know if he thinks he's an Abraham and it's time to begin again with the only true faithful one left. I've worked my fingers to the bones for you. No one else even has a callus, Lord. It's an egotistical pity party. Self-righteousness sometimes feeds spiritual depression. He's nursing his self-pity. He's still depressed. Depressed in the desert, depressed on a mountain. Depressed under a tree, depressed in a cave. The Elijah of Carmel looks nothing like the Elijah of Horeb. We need this reminder. Depressed people make things sound worse than they are. Depressed people make things sound worse than they are. They have severe amnesia. They forget the goodness of God. One author wrote, Despair is always colorblind. It can only see the dark side of life. When you're tired, like Elijah, you tend to jump to conclusions. You tend to over-exaggerate how bad things are. You overestimate your faithfulness to God and you underestimate God's faithfulness to you. Elijah's memory is selective. The resistance of one woman has in Elijah's mind destroyed his life. This is you when you imagine that your troubles are beyond any remedy. Riken helped me here when I was reading him a couple weeks ago. He said, Elijah is feeding himself a steady diet of half-truths. I'm the only one who stayed faithful. Well, that's half-truth. You did stay faithful, but you're not the only one. All the people of God have forsaken your covenant. Well, that's half-truth. Many have, but God still has a remnant. Plus, Where are you, Elijah? You are now hiding out in a cave. You are in the south when you should be in the north. But this is how despair often works. The momentum of a few true things leads you to a dangerously false conclusion. God doesn't owe you because you've remained faithful to him. We act like we should be exempt from car trouble, exempt from downsizing, exempt from the flu, exempt from crushing disappointments. Lloyd-Jones said we spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time talking to ourselves. Not every emotion is legitimate. Challenge your feelings. You must preach the gospel to yourself. And don't mumble it. Tell your depression and sadness that its days are numbered. Verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. There are three natural wonders, all within the span of a few minutes, 
And I thought we had bad weather in this area. A spectacle unfolded. First, a wind like a tornado. It, it, it tore out rocks and smashed them. Then an earthquake. It registered on the Richter scale. The mountain shook and quivered. Tearing wind, ground-shaking earthquake. Thirdly, a devouring fire. Moses was allowed to view the back of the Lord's splendor. Elijah probably thinks he's receiving the same experience Moses did and even superseding it. He's identifying himself as the second Moses. In fact, that meal sustained Elijah for the same amount of time that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. He's basking in the glow of the spectacular. Then the text says God was not in any of them. Not the fire, not the wind, not the earthquake. His splendor was not portrayed in any of them. God spoke to Moses through those wonders, but did not speak to Elijah through those wonders. And here's what I think it's saying. Elijah, you need to realize there is more to the Lord than fire. Mount Carmel is not how I usually do things, Elijah. Following those three spectacular natural events, there is the sound of a low whisper. And these are seemingly contradictory terms in the Hebrew. Sound and silence. That's how it's described. What's it like? Sound, but silence. Marginally noisier than no noise. A barely audible whisper. In sharp contrast to the tremendous manifestations before. Elijah, you want the dramatic, the sensational. But is my word alone sufficient for you? The KJV, the old King Jimmy, translates that phrase, a still, small voice, which has led to some borderline mysticism where people listen for the still, small voice of God somewhere in their head. This is unhelpful and sometimes dangerous. God talks to you through his book. This is a talking book. This is his still, small voice. Verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Maybe he goes out of the cave to better hear the whisper. He covered his face with his jacket, muffled his mouth, like you might put something over your face walking out into a dust storm. And didn't we read this already? It's like deja vu. The Lord already asked Elijah, what are you doing here? You don't want the Lord to have to ask you the same question twice. Verse 14. Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's the same self-centered, evasive answer. The vision makes no difference. He said the same thing. Same speech. He is, he is slow to move out of his swamp of despair. He continues his prophetic belly aching. Lord, let me tell you how bad my life is. Let me tell, let me tell you how faithful I have been. You don't rehearse your faithfulness to God. You rehearse God's faithfulness to you. Elijah believes himself to be the sole surviving worshiper of the Lord. <laughs> I read this and asked, was Elijah a fundamentalist? I'm the only one who has it right. Elijah is like the church that thinks they are the only one standing. God is only working in our church. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. 
and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. God is effectively saying, I'm not finished with you, Elijah. You, you don't tell me when you are finished. I tell you when you are finished. Go return. Go back to the risk. Go back to the labor that seems fruitless. God gives Elijah a threefold command. Three assignments. Anoint Hazel, king over Syria. Anoint Jehu, king over Israel. And find your replacement, a boy named Elisha. These three individuals will be united in bringing down the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Baal worshippers will finally be defeated. God is sketching out the future. These three things will happen. Elijah, Carmel will not be the end. A slow political process will be the end. This will come about not by your effort, but by the effort of others. Now, a little note here. Elijah will do one of these three, and the rest will happen under the authority of Elijah when Elisha does it. Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I like this. Oh, and by the way, Elisha, Elijah, you're a dime a dozen. You are one of 7,000. There is always someone else who can do my work in your place. You are just one man who gets to be a part of what I am doing. Pride made Elijah take his own importance too seriously. Self-importance can creep into our souls. Elijah, you don't have the corner on my work. Other knees are bowing to me. And this reveals a, a wonderful truth about our God. He's always preserving a remnant. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 preaches the very text I'm preaching to you. I, I want to read to you the Apostle Paul's sermon in Romans 11. You, don't turn to it, but just listen. Paul says, God has rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I am left alone. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul said, there was a remnant in Elijah's day and there's a remnant in my day. Take a reality check, you're not alone. The caves are alive with people holding firm to the gospel. Do you have a higher view of your faithfulness than God does? You are not indispensable. The Lord will surprise all of us on the final day when we see the multitudes that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah visits the swamp of despair. God shows up at the swamp of despair. Thirdly, God gently leads Elijah out of the swamp. God gently leads Elijah out of the swamp. Look at verse 19. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha. Let me just stop here and give you this truth. When God brought Elijah out of the swamp of despair, he brought him to Christian community. When God brought Elijah out of the swamp of despair, he brought him to Christian community. The first thing God commands Elijah to do is get with other people of God. Elijah, spend time with Elisha. Elijah was convinced he was alone. The whole world has walked out on me. He's burned out relationally. That's why he left a friend in Beersheba and went to be alone a day's journey in the desert. There's no one that he trusts. There's no one that he wants to invite in. He is lonely. Beloved, don't isolate yourself from the church. Lean into the church. Welcome spiritual reinforcements. 
Pastor, why am I feeling like this? Where you have missed the past two Sundays of the corporate gathering. It should affect you when you are not with the people of God. You were made for the gathering. You are isolated. That's why you are so sad. God didn't design you to be isolated. He designed you to cluster together with other Christians in a local church. Well, well, Elisha didn't come to me when I was under the broom tree. God didn't tell Elisha to go to you. He tells you to go to Elisha. Well, well, Kyle, it's hard to leave this dark, cold cave and go out into the open air. It's thinking like that that will keep you in the swamp of despair. Verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So Elisha goes to this family farm in Abel Mahola, which was known to be the breadbasket of Israel. It was a fertile piece of land right next to the Jordan River. Elijah sees 12 yoke of oxen plowing. There are two oxen in each yoke, so there are are 24 oxen total. They are split into 12 teams of two. The crew chief of the 12 is on the last set of oxen. He's plowing behind his 11 servants. He's a farm boy, somewhere between the ages of 18 and 25 years old. Elijah goes up to the young man and throws his jacket on him. Now I'm reading this and I'm asking, what is the deal with this? This young man is already sweating. He doesn't need a jacket. He's working on a farm. One scholar pointed out, not a word was spoken between them, but Elisha immediately knew what it meant. Everybody in Israel knew what it meant. That camel hair mantle jacket represented all that Elijah stood for. It represented his position as prophet and teacher. Sir John Malcolm wrote of Eastern customs, when a great teacher died, he bequeathed his cloak to the disciple he most esteemed. It, it's, its transfer marked out his heir. Elijah was calling Elisha into the ministry. This is the prophetic mantle. A symbolic picture of his power and authority as a prophet. When it is thrown on you, it pictures transferring, transferring that authority. It was a potent symbol. Now, there are struggling farmers, and then there are rich farmers. Elisha was a rich farmer. He's well-to-do. He's plowing the twelfth of the twelve plows. A middle-class family in Israel that day had one ox. Elisha had 24 of them. Think of oxen like cars. He's got a lot of cars. Verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? This, this follow me is discipleship language. Who makes a decision like this without asking some questions? Random dude comes up to you, throws his jacket on you, no words, motions for you, and then you just go? Elisha drops everything and he, and he goes. He asks Elijah, can I kiss my family goodbye? Elijah says, you are talking to me like I am in charge. I am not in charge. This is not my call. Elijah did not choose his successor. God did. It's, it's not my idea, champ. You might recall a New Testament equivalent of this in Luke chapter 9, verse 61. Someone wanted to follow Jesus Christ, but asked to go kiss mom and dad first. Jesus gave a different answer. He said, you're not fit to follow me. And you might wonder, why are there two different answers? Elijah gave one, Jesus gave the other. The Old Testament gave one, the New Testament gave the other. Why are there two answers? Because Jesus is addressing a completely different scenario. One re request came from a heart reluctant to follow Christ. 
and another request came from a heart ready to follow God. The motive behind the question was different. Verse 21. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and, notice this word, assisted him. Elisha just slaughtered his 24 oxen and generously gave it away at the neighborhood barbecue. This is dinner on the grounds. One ox fed a family of five for a year. So this 24 was a huge meal. They roasted the beef. This is roast beef. It's a big cookout. He slaughtered his livestock and burned his equipment. There's a brand new John Deere combine on fire and they are roasting marshmallows on it. This is a serious permanent commitment. No turning back. He, he's not going to return his hand to the plow. This beast isn't going to be my livelihood anymore. The Lord is. He's liquidating his farm assets, making it virtually impossible to return. A clear break is taking place. He cut ties with everything he possessed, his entire way of life. He literally cooks his career for dinner. No keeping the options open. He's burning his bridges, not allowing for any temptation to turn around and go home. Burn the ships. I will take this island. He turned in his resignation to Elisha Farms. He's got everything life could possibly want. Yet when the call of God comes, he obeys. He had a good life, but he is called to something greater. You must be prepared to leave everything behind and follow Jesus Christ. This is the picture of discipleship most often in the Bible. They left their boats. They left their family. They left their security. A man called to the ministry must be willing to leave home. God may not make him leave home, but he must be willing to leave home. He can't say, I'm going to serve within 30 miles of this family farm. You follow God. You don't ask God to follow you. And praise God for the parents of Elisha who said, go and obey the Lord even if it takes you away from me. Little boy says to his mom, I think I might want to become a preacher. She responds, son, let me give you some aspirin and maybe you'll get over it. Hey, dad, I think God is calling me to be a missionary. A what? A missionary. That's great, son. We need a lot of missionaries right here in this small town. Parents, one of the greatest things you can do is release your children to the Lord's will. Present the gospel needs of the world to them. Encourage them to leave everything, including you, and follow Christ. One of the little children in our church was supposed to quote his verse to his adventure club teacher. It was the verse that said, you have to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. The little boy, this is the young fella. It was time for him to say the verse and he broke down crying. And he said, I don't want to say it. I don't want to leave mom. <laughs> That's okay. It's not time for him to leave. Usually, what you find is the mom not letting grown son leave. Wanting him to stay in her arms instead of releasing him to the Lord's arms. Elisha just kisses his family goodbye. And then kisses the world goodbye. Elisha went from CEO of Elisha Farms to making coffee and, and, and copies. He's, he's pouring coffee and making copies. He was called from a life of luxury to a life of danger. He serves as an apprentice for 20 years. That's a long time to wait in the wings. Now, let's leave Elisha and let's return to Elijah. From here on out, Elijah is back. 
He's no longer in the swamp of despair. He's joyfully obeying the commands of God. He left the swamp. If you leave the swamp, it's only by God's good grace gently leading you out. When Elijah had had enough, he found that God's grace was more than enough. There is no swamp so deep that Christ isn't deeper still. This would be a good time to end, but I have six more truths to give you. Let's take home six truths that will help us when we find ourselves under the broom tree. Let's take home six truths that will help us when we find ourselves under the broom tree. This is the first. You may visit the broom tree, but you must not live there. You may visit the broom tree, but you must not live there. Dear one, under the broom tree is not a place to live. James 5 tells us Elijah was subject to passions like us, meaning he was tempted, as we are, to despair. When despair comes, don't be surprised by it, but don't remain in it either. Depressed persons cannot usually be talked out of their gloom. The only thing that brought Elijah out was God's word. When counseling, employ God's word. When people are in the dark night of the soul, they need the clear word of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote so much on spiritual depression because he went through it himself, said, and I quote, It is very sad that anyone can remain in such a condition. And such people are very poor representatives of the Christian faith. End quote. To be consistently downcast is a poor representation of the faith you possess. Jesus makes his people glad. Martin Luther was a very cheerful man as a rule, but he had terrible fits of depression that could last for days. At one time, when he spent a little too long under the broom tree, his wife Kate walked into the room wearing all black. Then she dressed the children in all black. They all came and sat down. Luther was startled. Are you going to a funeral? Who died? She responded, God did. Or at least that's how you've been behaving. So I thought I would join you in the memorial service. Luther got the message, and he left the broom tree. The second truth, when it seems like God is losing, realizing, realize he is working in ways you cannot appreciate. When it seems like God is losing, realize he is working in ways you cannot appreciate. Anytime you, you read a passage in the Bible, you must ask this question, how did the original audience need this story? How did the original audience need this story? Well, the original audience, they were losing. God was losing. At least that's how it appeared. They were sitting among their shattered expectations. The original readers of 1 Kings were in Babylonian exile. And Babylon was worse than Jezebel. They needed to be reminded that God is quietly sovereign. The silent whisper. He's quietly sovereign. He's every bit as real in the sorrows as he is in the successes. The reason for Elijah's depression and sadness was Israel's apostasy. But he had a misunderstanding of God's ways in history. Elijah, what makes you think I don't have a plan? just because it isn't yours. Inadequate understanding of God's plan leads to sadness. Just because you're not as successful as you think you should be, that doesn't mean my work is derailed. Signed, God. Truth number three. Elijah's time under the broom tree instructs us on pastoral burnout. 
Elijah's time under the broom tree instructs us on pastoral burnout. Suicide watch Mondays. That's what ministry is like for pastors. Mondays are tough for pastors. We wanted the fire to fall. But people fall away from the gathering instead. One of my old profs counseled pastors to mow their yard or steam clean their carpet on Monday. For at least they will have some sense of accomplishment after feeling like a failure from the previous day. Elijah quit the ministry. That's why he dropped his servant off. He became for a time a non-profit. Started his own non-profit organization. Some pastors resign every Monday. They, like Elijah, look at the fruit of their labor and wonder if it made any difference. Does what I'm doing really matter? Does it surprise you to hear that pastors also sit under the broom tree? The prophet was not wrong to have a burden for the cause of God. He was wrong to allow that burden to drive him to despair. The pastor is not wrong to have a burden for the cause of Christ. But he is wrong to allow that burden to drive him to despair. There's a book called The Preacher's Catechism. It's written by Lewis Allen. I buy it for my pastor friends and ask them to read three pages every Monday morning. Pastors being down on Monday could simply be adrenaline depletion. They are in the business of being drained emotionally and spiritually. You can't bear the weight of broken sheep and it not drain you. Charles Spurgeon missed many of his preaching dates from gout and depression. He called his time under the broom tree the minister's fainting fits. He wrote about it. Pastors sometime mope. My ministry isn't fruitful. I'm puddle glum. I'm going to sulk after a sermon on Sunday because my ministry didn't produce the results that I thought it should. There are a lot of Pastor Elijahs out there. We envision a church that would reach the world and then Jezebel doesn't repent. Plus Ahab's repentance doesn't last. When our dreams of accomplishing grandeur for God die, we must remember his plan for his people does not die. FFC, pray for your pastors. I've found sometimes the moments under the broom tree is nothing more than self-loathing, the self-loathing of a high achiever who, think he, who thinks he has failed. Truth number four. Why don't you just share your feelings with Jesus? He already knows. Why don't you just share your feelings with Jesus? He already knows. Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your struggles. He will let you have the first word, but he will have the last word. Charles Spurgeon once confessed to his congregation these words. I find myself frequently depressed. Perhaps more than any other person here. There were 6,000 people listening to him that Sunday. He continues, I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. End quote. Faith will evict fear. Salvation will temper sadness. Devotion will push despair. When you are under the broom tree, you have to mature yourself beyond mere vegging out and binge-watching TV shows. You become unhappy, so you medicate with Doritos. How long are you going to allow that to continue? Well, Kyle, until God sends an angel with a word from the Lord for me. Well, sir, ma'am, he already sent a word from the Lord for you. We simply need to get up and read it. 
Refusing to read God's word is like a sick person refusing to drink fluids. The fifth truth. Don't buy the lie that the spiritually strong never struggle. Don't buy the lie that the spiritually strong never struggle. For some of you, depression, despair, is so much out of your experience that you view it as weak. And that is why this passage is so important for you. I know people who don't get down. They don't have blue days. They don't ever visit the the broom tree. And they really struggle to understand those people who do. There was a panel discussion with uh, John Piper and John MacArthur on it. Uh, The moderator asked John Piper, do you ever go through depression? He went on this long talk about his depression and how deep it is and how dark it is in different seasons of life. Then the moderator asked John MacArthur, do you ever go through depression? John MacArthur said, I've never been depressed one day in my life. That's the spectrum. Your pastors, three of the four, we had to leave one here so he can preach next Sunday. (laughs) We're all going to John MacArthur's conference in California this week. Both of those men are going to be preaching together. You've got the spectrum. Elijah was not spiritually weak. Jonah was not spiritually weak. David in the Psalms was not spiritually weak. The book of Lamentations is one big ugly cry. That's not spiritually weak. Charles Spurgeon was not spiritually weak when he said, there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. Here's something glorious. The Bible says we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Sinclair Ferguson says Jesus was depressed. He had no other word to describe what took place in the garden. That Jesus went through a period of deep despair. That may be trying to read our state back into the Bible. I I don't know. I do know it was utterly holy for Jesus to experience the dark night of the soul. I'm certain of that. Great emotional distress, agony. That may be better words to describe what Jesus endured. All right, our last truth. Six. Jesus is the full and final Elijah who didn't merely sit under a tree but died upon one. Jesus is the full and final Elijah who didn't merely sit under a tree but died upon one. Unlike Elijah, Jesus' sadness never led to sin. Unlike Elijah, Jesus doesn't flee after being on a mountain. He flees to a mountain. Unlike Elijah, Jesus doesn't run when Jezebels try to kill him. He stays and faces the death. Elijah says, I'm going to die under this tree. Jesus says, I'm going to die on this tree. Christian, Jesus died on a tree for every instance when your time under the tree was sin. These two are nothing alike, Elijah and Jesus. They are nothing alike. Well, except in one way. Elijah asked God to take his life at the weight of the rebellious people. Jesus also asked God to take his life at the weight of the rebellious people. But that's where the similarities end. Jesus' death on a tree really paid for the sins of his rebellious people.